Well, good morning, everybody. Great to see you. If you've got your Bibles, if you could please turn to Psalm 127. Psalm 127. I'm going to begin reading at verse 1. Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, The gods stand watch in vain. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat. For he grants sleep to those he loves. Children are a heritage from the Lord, offspring a reward from him, like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their opponents in the court. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we come to your word this morning, Lord, we pray that you would speak to us. We pray that you would instruct us. We pray that you would focus us. Lord, we pray that you would speak to our hearts. Lord, we pray that you would draw us close to you and prioritize our hearts and our minds for the things that truly matter to you. Holy Spirit of God, we pray that you would blow on the embers of our heart and that through your word, a fire would be rekindled. And all God's people said, I wanna look at the Psalm under three key focus areas, the house, the heartland, and the home. The house, the heartland, and the home. And by the house, I mean the house of the Lord. By the heartland, I mean our place of residence. And by home, I mean our family unit. All of these three things really matter to God, and they ought to matter to us, but not simply matter to us, matter to us in a right way and in a right proportion. Now, before uh, digging into this text, I just want to remind you of the context here. This psalm, Psalm 127, is one of 15 psalms that are described as psalms of ascent. These were psalms that were sung at least three times a year when the people of God uh, would converge on Jerusalem and ascend the hill of the Lord uh, to the temple. So these were psalms that were sung at annual festivals. These psalms were designed uh, not simply to help uh, the people of God anticipate the grand uh, celebration that was about to unfold, but it also helped them to prepare them and focus them on the things that really mattered. This psalm, I would suggest to you, uh, is uniquely placed to serve us really at the outset of this conference together. It is a huge privilege, is it not, to be able to be gathered with people literally from around the world to come and celebrate uh, the goodness and greatness of God. But when we add a annual international gathering like this, the temptation for our focus to be in the wrong place uh, is very high. And if we focus in the wrong place, it means that we'll have a wrong vision fulfilling uh, our horizons and we're likely to head off in a wrong direction as a result. This psalm is designed uh, to help us not do that. This psalm is designed to help us focus on what really matters and to think and to live and to feel in a biblical and proportionate way. So let's begin with the house, the house of the Lord. Now, if ever I was addressing a group of people who cared about the house of the Lord, who cared about the church of Jesus Christ, it would be this one, right? I mean, who gives up three days of their week to attend a conference that has the tagline through the church? I mean, if we all went into Washington, D.C. today and we said, hey, we've got this conference, we've got free transport, I can give you a free ticket, this is a three-day event that is gonna be teaching people about the church, do you wanna come? I guess like if we got three people coming from a day's work, we'd be really encouraged about that. Like nobody in DC really cares about the church, right? 
Nobody's gonna attend a three-day conference, even if it's just down the road and they're free tickets. Nobody's gonna attend. But we're the crazy guys that are attending, right? We're the crazy guys that are attending. Like, if you traveled for more than eight hours to be at this conference, can you just stand? Could, could, could you stand? If you traveled for more than eight hours to be at this conference, can you stand? You guys are crazy. What are you doing? Why did you tra- stay standing? Stay standing. Stay standing. Why, why did you travel for more than eight hours? If you traveled for more than 12 hours, remain standing. They're lunatics, and then they are ultra-lunatics. If you travel for more than 24 hours to be here, can you remain standing? Is there anybody who traveled for more than 30 hours door-to-door to be here? You can remain standing. You can remain standing. Who does this? Who travels over 30 hours to attend a conference about the church? Not only that, but, but like a lot of us here are actually partnering in order to plant and strengthen churches. So it's not just like we're spending a three-day conference thinking about the church, traveling ridiculous lengths of time, but actually we're part of a movement that wants to plant and strengthen churches. This, this, is, this is crazy. This is crazy, and we need to ask ourselves the question at the outset of this conference, is this crazy crazy, or is this biblical crazy? Like, are we just like really out of our mind? Are we like that weird niche group that kind of became obsessed with something that doesn't really matter and we managed to find enough other crazy people around the world that would kind of come together to validate our craziness, but to everybody else, this is like crazy crazy, or are we biblically crazy? Like, have we cracked open our Bible And have we seen something about what God is up to that has utterly ruined us? Like forever, like for the rest of our lives, we've we've seen something. Are, Are we crazy crazy or are we biblically crazy? Well friends, let's just do a quick walk through the book of Ephesians and let's just think if we're biblically crazy or crazy crazy. Think about Ephesians 1 where Paul writes, that God was pleased to place all things under Jesus' feet and appoint him to be head over everything for the church. So Paul paints a picture in Ephesians 1 of Christ ruling and reigning for the church. So we have total authority for the church, ruling and reigning, not for our nation states. Ruling and reigning for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Friends, is it possible for Christ to identify with the church more than by referring to the church as his very body? Ruling and reigning for the church, which is his body, who fulfills everything in every way. And this wasn't Paul getting excited, writing to the Ephesians church, just kind of getting ahead of himself a bit. Paul could write, which is his body, because he had a personal encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, and the risen Lord Jesus intervened in Paul's life and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The words that that Paul heard on the road to Damascus wasn't, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting an organization that I'm loosely affiliated with, along with multiple other institutions that do good work in my name? That isn't what he heard on the road to Damascus. He heard, why are you persecuting me? To persecute the church was to persecute Jesus because the church is the body of Christ. Jesus couldn't identify more with the church than by referring to us as his very body. Or or, or think about Ephesians 2, 
Paul's trying to bring these two groups together, Jews and Gentiles together. And in Ephesians 2, he says that through Christ's physical death on the cross, he has broken the dividing wall of hostility to create one new man, one new humanity in Christ. The work of Christ wasn't to make Gentiles more Jewish, but Christ came to break the dividing walls of hostility to create this new tribe, this new humanity that is defined by the finished work of Christ. Or think about Ephesians 3, his intent, his intent, not our intent, his intent is that now, right now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God, which actually in the context of Ephesians is Jew, Gentiles together, the multicolored wisdom, the manifold wisdom of God be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Why is God so interested in the church? He's interested in the church because it's now through the church that his manifold wisdom be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. God cares about the church because he cares about his intergalactic glory. There's something about when Christians come together and lift up the name of Jesus that God is glorified in the heavenly realms. What does that mean? I've got no idea, but it's in the Bible. God gets intergalactic glory when we come together. That's not TBN, that, that's Ephesians 3. Intergalactic glory. And this is his eternal purpose. So it's not gonna budge. He's not gonna budge on it. He's not ADHD. He's not like, oh, I'm in the church now. Oh, what's this over here? Oh, what's that over there? No, this is, is his eternal purpose that he is gonna uh, accomplish this. And then Paul just like ends this kind of understanding with this prayer now to him. Glory in the church and glory in Christ Jesus. And I'd read Ephesians so many times and there came a day where I just like, what? Paul isn't just saying glory in Jesus. Like we can all get behind that, right? Like glory in Jesus, sure, but glory in the church. Paul, did you really pray that? He absolutely did pray that. God's glory manifest in the church. And of course, then we get Ephesians 4. The ascended Christ gives gifts, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach maturity in the faith. How many people know like the first thing Jesus did when he ascended to heaven is kind of really important, right? And what did he do? He poured out gifts on his church for the maturing of his church. Or what about Ephesians 5? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. What was the joy set before Christ when he died on the cross? I wanna to suggest to you that the joy set before him was his bride that was gonna await him as a result of his extreme sacrifice on the cross. Friends, we are not crazy crazy. We are biblically crazy. We have seen something. We have opened up the Bible and we've seen that the church of Jesus Christ really, really, really matters. It matters eternally to God. I wanna suggest to you that in light of the book of Ephesians, it's almost impossible to exaggerate the importance of the local church. It's almost impossible to exaggerate in light of what God has said about his church in Holy Scripture. And yet, here in Psalm 127, there is a warning. Here in Psalm 127, there is a caution, and the caution is this. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. It is possible to be so into building the house of the Lord that we labor in vain. Our, our work is futile, our, our work is worthless, our, our work is inconsequential. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling. Hard work 
without any point should concern all of us. Story is told of individuals who survived uh, German concentration camps through the Second World War, and when they asked them what kind of torture they found the worst, a group at a particular concentration camp said that the worst experience they had of torture in a German concentration camp was that they were required to uh, dig uh, this enormous hole uh, on the con uh, concentration uh, camp and then move all the dirt from one end of the concentration camp to the other. So it was, it was a massive hole. And day after day and week after week and month after month, right through the worst of winter, they had to dig this hole during their waking hours uh, and move the dirt to the other side uh, of the concentration camp until the day finally came where they had dug the hole empty. They had finally completed their work, at which point the head of the concentration camp said, you will now move all the dirt back to fill up the hole that you've dug. And the men interviewed said that the realization that all of their work was in vain proved harder to bear than the physical exertion that they experienced through months and months of digging this hole. And therefore, it would be wise for all of us to ask the question at the outset of this conference, oh, are we laboring in vain? The Apostle Paul really cared about whether he was laboring in vain. He went up to Jerusalem to speak to those who appeared to be leaders to check that he wasn't running his, his race in vain. So as leaders, how, 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 can we, uh, how can we build in vain? What, what are some of the signs that we are building in vain? A misinterpretation of Psalm 127 would be that any physical effort in order to build the local church is wrong. That actually, in Psalm 127, what we have here is a, uh, a call from Solomon for us to down tools and just let God be God. But that would be a mistake. Listen to what Derek Kidner writes. He says, while a contrast between fruitless toil and effortless enrichment is attractive, the opening verses are, in fact, a contrast to attitudes to God, dependence and independence, rather than to attitudes to work, or still less, the rival merits of toil and sleep. So what Solomon starts off with at the start of the psalm is, 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 is not a, he's not juxtaposing a work or no work. And those people who are working really hard are, clear, are clearly doing something wrong. The, 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 the opening verses here in Psalm 127 isn't the get out of jail free card for those of you that arrive fairly slothful and lazy. And if your congregation could be really honest, they're they just kind of disappointed that you're already in functional semi-retirement, uh, although you have got an actual job. That, that's not the purpose of Psalm 127. The, the, the juxtapose isn't between work and no work, but rather this psalm addresses the work beneath the work. This psalm asks the question, why do we work? What is the belief structure that actually undergirds our work? Now, no doubt, uh, there are many here that have arrived exhausted, right? Working in the church is hard work, and you can really arrive exhausted after a demanding season, and maybe somebody's already asked you, how are you feeling? And your answer unequivocally is, I'm exhausted. I'm exhausted. And then if the person said, well, why are you exhausted? Why are you exhausted? My guess is we wouldn't get a single person here answering that question, well, I'm really exhausted because I am so passionate about building something for my own glory and fame, and it is really wearing me out. Like, we're, we're, we're way too clever to do that. Like, nobody's gonna say, like, hey, Steve, why are you exhausted? I'm exhausted because I'm trying to do something by me, for me, baby. That's why I'm exhausted. 
My glory isn't being displayed in the measure that I want it to be, and it's leaving me feeling exhausted. I'm trying to build something by me, for me, baby. No, 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 nobody's gonna go for that, are they? Nobody would actually say that or verbalize that. But we could be tempted to say, well, the reason why I'm really exhausted is because I'm really working hard I'm laboring hard for the glory of God. This isn't by me, for me. This is by me, for God, and that's why I'm exhausted. But the challenge of Psalm 127 is that the matrix by me, for God, is defined as laboring in vain. The call of Psalm 127 is to get into the happy place where it is by God, for God. The worst is by me, for me. But the by me, for God, according to this psalm, is laboring in vain. Now, this psalm doesn't down hard work. It talks about labor. It doesn't deny labor, there is labor, there is toil, there is getting up early, there is staying up late. It doesn't deny that we have a part to play, but it draws attention to the fact that our work is only ever successful because of God's work. His work always precedes our work. Without God's work, our work wouldn't even be possible. And as creatures, we just, we just love to get the credit ourselves. We, we love to place ourselves in the role of creator when we not, which is why Solomon begins the psalm with, unless the Lord builds the house, it's builders labor in vain. Friends, just an honest assessment of why your church actually exists will reveal clearly, irrefutably, that God is at the bottom of it all. Friends, let's just think about it uh, today. If Jesus Christ hadn't left the glories of heaven and humbled himself to become a man, your church wouldn't exist. If he hadn't resisted all temptation that was thrown at him, your church wouldn't exist. If Jesus hadn't become the sin bearer and died on the cross, your church wouldn't have existed. If Jesus Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, your church wouldn't have existed. If Jesus Christ hadn't saved individual after individual after individual, your church wouldn't have existed. If Jesus Christ hadn't knitted them together, added them together, and formed a community, your church wouldn't have existed. If Jesus Christ hadn't sacrificially given his life for the individuals in your church, they wouldn't really wanna give sacrificially themselves. People just aren't like that. It's because they've experienced amazing, incredible grace that they become generous. Friends, we're not, I'm, not, I'm not asking you to be falsely humble today. At the bottom of all of our churches is God's eternal work without question, without apology. The thing I love about the psalm is this psalm is one of the few psalms written by Solomon, the guy who actually built the temple. And when the guys were gonna walk up the hill, when they're gonna ascend the hill of the Lord to the temple in Jerusalem, the first thing he wanted them to think about is that unless the Lord builds the house, it's builders labor in vain. Hey guys, don't think about me, don't think about Solomon, think about the work of God. God has built this temple. And friends, all of us, all of us are in danger of once things get going and there's a little bit of success and it all starts to happen, we, 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 we're very good at taking credit for the hard work that actually God has put in. Listen to the sound advice of American statesman Benjamin Franklin when he delivered the following speech at the convention for the forming the Constitution of the United States in Philadelphia in 1787. So this happened just up the drag. Benjamin Franklin wrote the following. In the beginning of the contest with Britain, when we were sensible of danger, we had daily prayers in this room for divine protection. Our prayers, sir, were heard and they were graciously answered. 
all of us who engaged in the struggle must have observed frequent instances of superintending providence. To that kind providence, we owe this opportunity of consulting in peace on the means of establishing our future nation. And have we now forgotten this powerful friend? Or do we imagine that we no longer need his assistance? I have lived a long time. Benjamin Franklin was 81 when he gave the speech. And the longer I live, the more convincing proof I see of this truth, that God governs in the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it possible that an empire can rise without his aid? We have been assured, sirs, in the sacred writing that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. I firmly believe this, and I also believe that without his concurring aid, we shall proceed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. Friends, without his concurring aid, there is no advance. They just just doesn't exist. There's no local church that we're a part of without his concurring aid. Have you forgotten about his concurring aid? Or are you taking credit for the upside when he's the one that has done all the hard work? And friends, one of the signs that they could be in your life, that you are relying on yourself and not relying on God is frustration. The motto of the city of Edinburgh is as follows, without the Lord, frustration. Without the Lord, frustration. How are you doing? Is your Christian leadership by you for God? Or is it by God for God? Let me give you just eight signs that you might be trying to do Christian ministry by yourself for God. The first is prayerlessness, prayerlessness. You rate your work more than you rate God's work. You, you assume that you can get more done than God can get done. Second, anxiety toil, frustration, your life is defined by a drivenness. There's a drivenness to get something done, you're overwhelmed by an anxiety, there's overwork, there is frustration because things aren't getting done. Whenever there's a problem in the local church, your default mode is simply to work harder. If we just, if we just knuckle down, if we just work harder, if we just have more meetings, if we just think more strategically, then that will produce the breakthrough. You're struggling to sleep. The Lord grants sleep to those he loves. If Jesus is in the boat, you can smile at the storm. Everything else in your life's a mess. You know that if there's a mispriority in your life, if you're super good at one thing, but everything else is a little frayed. Your relationships are frayed, your desk at home's a mess, your kids are underappreciated. You like preach awesome sermons, they're tight and neat and fantastic, but if only the rest of your life was like that. You lack joy, you lack joy. Like you're serving Jesus, but you're like really miserable. Like, you, 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 you're emotionally buzzing on Sunday, but you're not really great to hang out for the rest of the week. An honest assessment of your spiritual character is that over the last while, you have regressed. You are less godly than you used to be. Phenomenally, you are in Christian ministry becoming less mature for Jesus. And finally, you're impatient. You find yourself getting quickly and easily impatient. Friends, can you recognize any signs that maybe 
you're trying to build the house and not allowing God to do his work. You say to me, Stephen, why such a detailed description of building on your own strength? I didn't get those from a book. Firstly, the house. Secondly, the, ha- the heartland. Secondly, the heartland. Having highlighted the house, Solomon then highlights the city. And in this case, it is Jerusalem. And in, in this time in salvation history, this is really the epicenter of all things spiritual for Jewish people. We get a little insight uh, into this in Psalm 137. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. And yet here, as they ascend in the hill of the Lord to the temple in Jerusalem, the psalmist says, unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stand God in vain. And if there was ever a city at any point in human history where you could say, no, 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 this is fine. They don't really need the Lord's assistance because this is the Lord's delight, so it's all gonna be fine. Everything's gonna be perfect. It would be Jerusalem, but it wasn't. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen watch over it in vain. Two things that I see that are important from here. Firstly, we shouldn't just have a heart for the church, but we should have a heart for our surrounds. Eugene Peterson writes the following. He says, serving Christ is geographical as much as it is theological. Now is the time to rediscover the meaning of the local. Our work for Christ takes place geographically. The gospel is emphatically geographical. Place names such as Nazareth and Samaria and Jerusalem are embedded into the gospel. God cares about places, and because God cares about places, we should care about places. In the evangelical world, we've had a a clarion call to care about the great cities of the world, and it's really awesome to be in a partnership where we've got somebody blowing the trumpet, not just for the great grand cities of the world, but we've got somebody blowing a trumpet for the small town that Jesus really cares about. Friends, we should care about the context in which we live. Friends, contextual concern really matters in advance. We really want to care about the places that we live. We want to care because God cares, because God cares, because God has a great concern. But the second thing that we should notice here is that any success that comes to our region is ultimately determined by God, is ultimately determined by God. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen watch in vain. Friends, it's easy for us to become really proud about the town that we live in or the village we live in or the city that we live in and and we can become aware of this, this kind of group success that's happening in our locations without acknowledging that God's behind it all. We get an incredible insight to this in Jonah chapter four. You remember the the story of Jonah? Jonah's called to Nineveh. He doesn't wanna go to Nineveh, and we find out why he doesn't wanna go to Nineveh in chapter four, because he knew that if he went to Nineveh, God would have mercy on Nineveh. And he really wanted Nineveh nuked, not responding to the message of grace. And so when God shows mercy and grace and the whole city turns to God, he is furious. He says that he's mad enough to die, and he goes to a high place overlooking the city. Why is Jonah doing that? Well, we know why Jonah's doing that. He's giving God an opportunity to repent. God hasn't nuked the city, but he goes up onto the mountain to look at the city. God says, do you have any right to be angry? He says, I'm, I've got reason enough to die. And he goes up the mountain, giving God an opportunity to repent. But you know the story, it gets super hot, and Jonah gets kind of uncomfortable, and then we get this vine grows up miraculously and supernaturally. And Jonah gets a bit of air conditioning and he goes from being really, really mad to being really, really happy. And then the God that provided the vine is the God that provides the worm, the worm eats the vine, the vine dies, and Jonah gets mad, really mad again. And once again, God says to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said. I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, although you did not tend or make it grow. 
It sprung up overnight and died overnight. Should I not be concerned for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? Friends, do you, do you, do you get the inference here? God is saying to the Israeli prophet from the people of God, you're concerned about the plant, although you didn't tend and care for it. Should I not be concerned about Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria and the arch enemy of Israel? Should I not be concerned about that city, inference, that I tended and cared for? What? No, 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 Lord, you, you, you tend and care for Jerusalem. You, do, you don't tend and care for Nineveh. You, you don't tend and care for our arch enemies, the people that are plotting to bring us down. You don't do that. And he's like, yeah, I do, because I'm not just the God of Jerusalem. I'm the God of the ends of the earth. I'm the God of Mecca. I'm the God of Islamabad. I'm, I'm the God of everything. I'm, a, I'm the God of the nations. And if you, to, to get on agenda with me, then you really need to care about what I care about. And I care about all cities and all towns and all villages, not just what you care about. And when one city is flourishing and blessing, it's because I'm at the bottom of that, not because People were clever and amazing. They may think that. That's what you may read in the press. But at the bottom of all of it is none other than God himself. So firstly, the house. Secondly, the heartland. And finally, the home. Finally, the home. Children are an inheritance from the Lord. Offspring a reward from him like arrows in the hand of a warrior. Are children born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their opponents in the court. Now, there is a massive, quick transition that takes place in the psalm. We get the temple, the house of the Lord, we get the heartland, we get Jerusalem, and then we get family? Really? And some commentators, when they're looking at it, they're saying, no, 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 this doesn't belong together. There's, these are actually two separate psalms. It's, it's, it's like we're talking about Jerusalem and we're talking about the temple and, and now you're talking about family. It, it, it doesn't work together. This, these, these, this little bit's been tagged onto that. But, but, but they're wrong. Because what you find is that actually Psalm 127 and Psalm 128 are mirrors. Because in Psalm 127, we start in the city and we end in the family. But in Psalm 128, we start in the family and we end in the city. They are designed to be together. And why are they designed to be together. Why do we have the family here? Because God cares about family. God doesn't just care about the church, and he doesn't just care about towns and cities to the ends of the earth. He also cares about families. He cares about my family, and he cares about your family. Two big ideas from the psalm is, firstly, your family is a part of the package. Simply to have a kind of a passion for the church and a passion for the ends of the earth or a passion for the town that you're in but not a passion for your family and your children is to, to really miss the point, is to profoundly miss the point. Notice children are a heritage from the Lord. Our offspring a reward. They, 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 they're from the Lord. I don't know if it's just me but like at Christmas time when, when, when all the presents gather I like to look before we open up the presents who I'm getting the presents from. Like I must admit when I was really young I didn't care. It would just be like get the gift and whoosh, I'd like immediately open it because I was more interested in what I got than who gave it to me. But the older I've got the, the Lord's worked on me and, and now, I'm, now I'm concerned about who gives me. And so it's like okay the, the Anna's given me this. Okay. I'm, I'm, going to be, I'm going to be interested in not just what I get, but who I got it from and, 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 and what she gave me. So when I, when I open up the Christmas present and it's a, it's a year of gym membership, it's like, wow, that's really interesting. No, no, she did no, no, she. Who you get it from is like as important as what you get. And friends, children, the word of the Lord says, are gifts from the Lord. It, th this is from God. Like, like if you get the surprise delivery, uh, 
your Amazon delivery, like who is this? Is this Stephen Rain coming again and I'm getting an Amazon delivery that I wasn't expecting? Who's this from? Oh no, this is from the Lord. <laughs> this, this is coming from God. Wow, this is incredible. And it is incredible, friends. It, it, it's from the Lord. The Word of God says that our children are our heritage. Friends, the, the lasting gift that we actually give to humanity isn't actually the churches that we have the privilege of leading, it's actually our children. The thing that we actually give to the world that's gonna last after we're around are our children. It is a heritage from the Lord. It is a reward. It is a reward. It is a reward from Him. Now, some of you are looking at me really weird because you've got really young kids, and this really doesn't feel like a reward. This, this, this really feels like a punishment. And, and Kidner's beautiful in this. He says the following. He says, it's not untypical for God's gifts at first to seem a liability or at least a responsibility before they become obvious assets. The greater their promise, the more likely these children will be a handful before they are a quiverful. The man who used to lead Jubilee before he handed over to me uh, was one of the most amazing Christians I've ever met, an absolutely inspirational Christian, Simon Pettit. And Lindsay, his wife, told me that he was a horror to raise. His, his, Simon's mom said he was just so difficult to raise. In fact, at one point, she kind of had a nervous breakdown and actually needed the Salvation Army to take him uh, off her hands for a number of weeks for her just to get equilibrium. They're a handful before they become a quiverful, but they are from the Lord. Do you relate to your kids in light of that? Or, or like they from the Lord and they really matter or are they the sideshow? Is your wife like increasingly frustrated that you've got like huge vision and huge passion and seemingly endless energy for the church? But when it comes to the family, you're just so uninvolved, so unemotionally connected. I grew up in a home where my parents weren't Christians, but this is a true story. Every single day that I grew up, my dad would look me in the eye and say, I love you, he would hug me, he would give me a kiss. And he didn't just say, I love you every day of my life, he just backed that up in ways of just crazy commitment. Every single sporting game I played, my dad was at the side of the field, every debate. Every responsibility that I needed to do, my dad was involved in helping me. When we needed to buy a house, my dad was there to help us do that. My dad's not a Christian, but man, I really know my dad loves me, without question. At any point, I could phone my dad if I was in a crisis and he'd be there in no time. The challenge that I've got is, can I just be as half as good a dad as my non-Christian dad? Like if I'm just half as good, I'm shooting lights out. The second thing that we see in the psalm is contrarian parenting advice. Contrarian parenting advice. Let's think about this carefully. Children are a heritage, they are a reward, they are a blessing from God. Children, therefore, are incredibly precious because they're from God, they're, they're, they're a heritage, they're a reward, they are a blessing, they are precious. And because they're precious, if you have something truly precious, what do you do? You hide it away, don't you? You, 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 you protect it from anything that is possibly dangerous. But this psalm has amazing contrarian parenting advice because it says that children are incredibly precious because they're from the Lord, but they are designed to be like arrows that are shot out on global mission. 
arrows in our quiver to be shot out, not to be left at home forever, not, not to be just around the corner from mom and dad so that we can keep a real close eye on them for the rest of their life. No, they're meant to be put in, in a bow and they're meant to be shot out. And then they're meant to contend in the public square for the very truth of God. That there are to be those that contend with their opponents, not against their opponents, but with their opponents for the purposes of God. What are the city gates that are spoken about here? The city gates were the place of assembly for, for legal and business transactions that were used for public meetings that affected uh, all of the city citizens, merchants, uh, visitors, messengers, judges, all frequented this area and conducted their business there. It was the legal, commercial, political, cultural center. And it's right there that God wants our children. Here we have contrarian advice. They are precious. They, 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 they're from the Lord. They're a blessing. They're a reward. But God wants to shoot them to the ends of the earth. God wants our children contending for him in the very public square. He wants us to raise Daniels and Esthers and Nehemiahs and Josephs who will engage at the very public place of culture, not hiding them away from culture, not withdrawing from culture, getting them as far away from the evil world. No, 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 no. Raising them with a big view of a great God and hearts that are set apart for God, so set apart for God that they can enter into a really messed up world and believe and trust God for things. Yes. Friends, some of us are full of faith, believing God for new buildings and new nations and new plants. We've got incredible vision for the church and the mission, but we're really bad at believing God for our children and what God might be calling them to. And friends, we need to have faith for our children. Friends, I find it very interesting that the two most powerful political individuals in Europe at the moment, Angela Merkel and Theresa May, are both pastors' daughters. Isn't that interesting? What was it like to be raised in those homes? What were those pastors doing that they were instilling something in their daughters that they could come to a place of serving the country in a political capacity? What, 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 what were they doing? Is that even on your radar? Could, could, could you imagine that even happening? Friends, there's a call here for a contrarian parenting advice where we would believe God and trust God to do truly radical things in and through our children. And that doesn't just mean that they're gonna be leading a church. It means that God can deploy them wherever he wants because all the world is his, and he, he's interested in the restoration of all things. Friends, there's a call here for us as church leaders to believe for our children, to look for gifts and call them out. So awesome, when I was here, I've just kind of noticed my, sec, um, my second child, Ben, I've kind of noticed he's got like an analytic gift. He can kind of work things and suss them out. And uh, just a couple of days ago, I was driving in the car with him, and I said, hey, Ben, I've just really noticed this about you. And he said to me, Dad, well, what, what does that mean? I said, well, I'm not sure what it means yet, but just notice that you're good at analyzing and working things out. So he went, cool. And then just while we're, while we're here, I was just like texting them, how's the exams going? And uh, he texted back, and he said, um, yeah, I wrote biology today, long paper, quite hard. Um, it was the hardest paper I've written but I expected that to be the case. So I just texted back and I said, cool, Ben, nice to see your analytic gift at work. Because <laughs> he's worked it out, that's, that's gonna be the harder one. He's already thought ahead. Are you believing, are you analyzing your children? Are you trusting God to use them for his name and for his glory in the public square? Let's stand together. Let's just close our eyes.
Lord Jesus, we just want to thank you that you love us with an everlasting love. And Lord, we thank you that you know our hearts and minds more than anybody else. And Lord, right at the outset of this conference, we just want to present ourselves to you. And Lord, we just want to acknowledge how vulnerable we are to not caring about the things that you care about or caring about the things that you care about in a wrong way, in an over-desire way, so that it ends up being by us for you. And Lord, we really do wanna see a gospel transformation take place in our hearts where it's not just by us for you, but it truly is by you for you. And we get to work deeply conscious of the fact that your work is the ultimate work and the significant work. Lord, we don't wanna just care about your church. We wanna care about where we live. And Lord, we don't wanna just care about where we live, but we wanna care about where other people live. And, friend, and Lord, we don't wanna just care about your church and care about the world, but we wanna care about our families. And so at the outset of this conference, Lord, if, if we're out of sync in any of those, we just wanna say we're sorry, Lord. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? He that has clean hands and a pure heart. And Lord, we just wanna to confess to you that left ourselves, we cannot ascend the hill of the Lord. We do not have clean hands and we do not have pure hearts. But Lord, we wanna thank you that you ascended the hill of the Lord for us. And you who had perfect clean hands, had hands that were nailed to a cross for us. And you, the only one with the only pure heart, had your heart pierced for us. And your heart pumped blood that was shed for us. So this morning, Lord, we just wanna hide in you and hide in the gospel, and we wanna ask you for grace to love the right things in the right way. To love the right things in the right way, Lord, we pray for your transforming work in our heart. We pray for the good news of the gospel, for us to love the church in the right way, to love the place that we live in the world that you've created and to love our children and to entrust our children to you to be shot to the ends of the earth and to serve you in the public square for your glory and your fame. And all God's people said, amen. amen.